0: Hi everybody. Welcome to a new episode. This is Meredith. So I have someone very special on the line with me right now who's not part of the episode, but she is super awesome. Nicole DeBoom is here. Hi Nicole. Hey there. So Nicole and I were chatting and we are inter- I'm interviewing her in a couple of months, but we wanted to talk about something first. So I started this thing called The Year of No Nonsense. And I wanted to get Nicole involved because, hey, we're all trying to do the best we can with our new year coming, and the year of no nonsense is basically a pledge to have no nonsense in your life. And not that I thought of Nicole and nonsense.
1: <laughs> but thanks a lot. We're busy women,
0: <laughs> right, Nicole?
1: Oh, you got it. Okay, so I was totally drawn to no nonsense. Just the phrase no nonsense because I spend so much time getting stuck in my own way that sometimes I can't see myself out of the the haze and the maze to get on with my day.
0: Yeah. So what what is your no nonsense? What are you going to eliminate? What is the nonsense you're getting rid of?
1: Well, it's it's cool. You know, you kind of gave everyone some ideas with your bullets on how you could potentially eliminate nonsense. And you know, the one that really resonates with me the most right now is be present in the day to day. Yeah. And that's, That is tough for me because my mind spins in a million directions. Not only do I have this great company, Skirt Sports, I have a nonprofit I started. I have my own body needs that I need to fulfill, like my fitness and working out. (laughs) I I I am married. (laughs) Yeah, I've got a body. I've got a husband. And, you know, I've got a five-year-old girl. And it's really, really hard for me to be present in the moment. So I love that one. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to be present in the day to day. That's awesome. That's awesome. So
0: I love your podcast, you guys. Nicole DeBoom's podcast, Run This World. She had me on as a guest back in the day. It feels like the day, even though it was like a year ago. (laughs) But Nicole has amazing guests on her show. And of course, she's the founder of Skirt Sports, which is major and also one of our sponsors for our tri club so we just love nicole and so i'm glad you're taking part in our revolution is what i'm calling it year of no nonsense
1: i want a t-shirt you're gonna make some we are (laughs) if there's a
0: t-shirt i will make it absolutely i look forward to our our talk in the coming months and thank you for all that you do nicole
1: oh you got it hey here's to no nonsense that's right
0: Today's episode is with Richard Turner. He's the star of the new documentary film called Delt. Richard is a card mechanic, and you have probably seen him on shows and with Penn and Teller. And he is also very incredible for another reason, which we tell you a little bit further down the show. So hope you guys enjoy this episode with Richard Turner. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome to the same 24 hours podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the same 24 hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Richard Turner. Hi, Richard.
2: Hello, Meredith. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm privileged to be on your podcast.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're here. When I looked up your Wikipedia page, it said that you are an American expert card manipulator. What do you think about that title?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, I guess that fits. I am a card manipulator, and I'm... uh, Pretty well respected for what I can do with the deck of cards.
0: Yeah, I have seen some of your videos. So, what what does a card manipulator do?
2: Well, actually, the term is card mechanic.
0: Card mechanic. There's
2: card. Uh uh-huh, There's card magicians, and a card mechanic is somebody who can fix a card game, and the techniques to control the outcome of a card game are a lo- lot different than the techniques used to perform card magic, and they take many, many more years to develop. And, uh, and part of the reason is magicians, you know, they can use sleight of hand and, or not sleight of hand. They can use misdirection and things like that to distract from what's going on. At the card table, if you try to do anything like that, uh, depending on where you are, the guns come out or the the fists come out. And you could either end up dead or hurt or have your hands broken or whatever. So right. the, the, gamb- the gamblers, you know, they would spend their life, especially during the 19th century, they'd really spend... Half their life developing one or two moves to get the money, as they call it.
0: Uh-huh. So that's
2: the difference between a card manipulator, card mechanic, really, and a card magician.
0: How did you get involved in your love for cards? Like, how did how did this start?
2: As a little boy, about 1961, I uh, started off watching old Westerns, and particularly one called Maverick starring James Garner. And he played a gambler, and he was just so cool, the way he had somehow managed to come out ahead at the card table. And we were a card-playing family. We were very poor. We had four games, Monopoly, chess, checkers, and a deck of cards.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And I was, the old, I was the oldest in the family. And my sisters, we had played cards for M&M's. And the red were the most valuable, and the brown were the least valuable. And I wanted their red M&Ms. In fact, I wanted all of their M&Ms. So we would play cards, and I, I, started figuring out ways to uh, make sure I got their M&Ms. And, and then we also actually played cards for massage time. you would have a thirty-second Annie, and then you could bet fifteen to fifteen to uh, sixty seconds. And at the end of each hand, you had to pay up if you want a back massage or a foot massage or something like that.
0: <laughs> That's my kind of bet. That sounds great. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it, it, it was fun. By the time the game was over, man, you had, all, you had your whole body all nice and uh, massaged up and so on. It was That's so
0: funny. So when did you start manipulating, mechanizing, manipulating the cards? Was it with your siblings? Was it from a young age?
2: Yes, I uh-huh. started when I was a little boy, like I said, about seven. I started figuring out ways of uh, like adding uh, an extra card in my hand when I would play. say so oh, okay. playing draw poker, and I, have, I would have six cards to work with where they only had five, and that gave me like a 20% advantage. And or I would, uh, when we played Gin Rummy or Rummy or some of the other games, I would leave certain cards on the bottom of the deck and know that they wouldn't come into play and so when I would, if I knew the twos, threes, and fours, there's a two, three, and four on the bottom of the deck, I wouldn't uh, use any of those in my hands. I would discard those and draw other cards. And one of the things that I did is I was left, I tried to leave the big cards on the bottom, like put two, leave two aces or two aces, two kings, something like that, where I knew they wouldn't come into play. And everybody else, they have an ace in their hand, or two aces, they're going to try to fit, you know, increase that hand by drawing for another ace. And I know they're not going to come into play. Or if I had two queens in my hand, the queens now would be the the, the strong cards that you had a chance of uh, increasing their value. So I would hold my queens or jacks, and I'd end up with three queens where they would have their two aces or two kings and not not, uh, strengthen their hand. Little things like that is how it started.
0: Did you get caught?
2: (laughs) No, I never got, caught, never as got said, caught. But you know what? Every Everybody said, you have to be cheating. We don't know what you're We know you're cheating because I was not discreet. <laughs> I had to cheat every single hand I played. I had to win every single game. So I did everything I could to make sure that's the way it turned out. So, uh, yeah. No, I, I never got caught, at least uh, not... Uh, uh, As a kid,
0: so how did it go when you started? You know, in your teenage years and twenties, what were you doing then, as far as the cards?
2: Well, I would we played cards with. uh, I played cards with friends through high school, and we played for all different different types of things. And um, and I just was a nervous person, and so I would focus my energy on uh, playing, you know, having a deck of cards in my hand, manipulating them. And then me back up. When I was, um, I had a lady, she read some parts of a book called Expert at the Card Table onto a big eight, uh, seven inch reel to reel tape recorder. And, and that book was called Expert at the Card Table by S.W. Erdnase.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: Erdnase wrote the book back in 1902. And it was all on, Techniques for cheating at cards, controlling the game like dealing off the bottom, stacking the dealing, uh, controlling the the shuffles and palming cards and stacking the deck, things along those lines. Yeah. Anyway, so then that continued, and when I turned 21, I had the privilege of meeting that man named Professor Dai Vernon. D-A-I Vernon, B-E-R-N-O-N. You Google him. Magicians all over the world know him. He's probably the most uh, influential man when it came to cards over the past hundred years and anyway, he was born in 1894 and he lived up to almost a hundred years old my wife and I him his 98th birthday two months before he passed away and uh, he was also known as the man who fooled Houdini and that's place back in like 1919 Wow anyway, he I met I met him in 1975 and I showed him some of my work and at the time my work was very poor but he took a liking to me, and uh, I became the recipient of a century worth of his most guarded card table artifice, things that he's literally traveled the world, uh, try, seeking out gamblers and hustlers and learning the moves that they used and and and, and developing them. And, and uh, I became a, the person that he shared a lot of that with.
0: That's really awesome. That's awesome. So... You also found a love for karate, right?
2: Yep. And when, so, I was a kid, I was, when you were a kid, yeah, yeah. I, was, when I was. Yeah, when I was a kid, I was the littlest, and I was picked on. I was either the second littlest or littlest in the class, and uh, you know, I was picked on. And and one time I was doing an art project, and uh, two kids came up and started pushing me around. And they pulled my wallet out of my pocket, and, and they started slapping me with it, throwing it over my head, and you know, and they anyway ran off with my money. And, uh, and I thought one day I'm going to learn karate and kicking your faces. <laughs> at that time, yeah, I know. At that time, there was this TV show called The Green Hornet, uh-huh. and the co-star was Bruce Lee. He played Kato uh, in that uh, series. And I thought that was so cool how he could take his foot and kick somebody head high, and so that uh, that caused me to you know have an interest in the martial arts. And I started in 1971. I say March 5th, 1971, when I first started training. And the school was uh, in Tijuana, Tijuana, Mexico,
0: uh-huh. south
2: of San Diego. I grew I grew up in San Diego, but my instructor he didn't want to deal with lawsuits, so he opened up his school in Tijuana back in 1960, and he was actually one of the, the first white guy to get a black belt in Japan in the Wadokai system and back in 60, I'm sorry, back in 57, 58, opened up a school in 1960. I joined it in 1971, like I said, and, and it was pretty radical back then because, uh, uh, there, was, there was really no rules. The only thing we didn't uh, hit were, were the knees, and uh, the groin was an open shot, and, uh, and the rules were with the head. You know, we will control our punches to the face as long if you control, I control. If you hit me in the face, the face is open target, then it's open. Oh, my. And uh, that, was, <laughs> that was mainly for brain damage, and, and <laughs> over the years, I've had some pretty uh, nasty, nasty fights. <laughs> i'll tell you one one was my you know, my green belt test, which was my second belt that i earned. You had to fight ten two i'm sorry five two minute rounds with a fresh opponent Until august second nineteen seventy two i believe it was and it was uh, over a hundred and five degrees and it was uh, over ninety ninety five percent humidity and this dojo in Tijuana was a brick building made out of concrete blocks, 30 by 50. There was no windows, no air conditioning, no fans. It had a single door, and uh, it was a you know scratched up wood floor, and um, you know it had a dressing room and a a dirty toilet. And and the the my instructor's name was John Murphy, and his wife Rosemary, her job. Was to wipe up the wipe up the blood off the wood floor so nobody slipped and hurt themselves. <laughs> <laughs> as, as people would get smashed in the nose or whatever, oh, no. she's got to wipe it up the blood. <laughs> but I was going to say, my first big test was I uh, fighting two ten. Uh, I'm sorry, five two minute rounds, and I was so exhausted at the end, I could I was gasping for air. I gotta uh, first I. I They they yelled tiempo, which in Spanish means time. As soon as they yelled time, I literally passed. I collapsed to the floor. Then I had to bow out. So I stood back up, bowed out, and then I collapsed to the floor again. Now everybody wanted to congratulate me. (laughs) And I stood up, took my congratulations, and then I crawled to the bathroom. And like I said, I was just half a constant. And when I came to my senses, I was drinking from a Tijuana toilet. Oh, no. Yes, because I was just, I wanted to drink water so bad, and I still get teased to this day by John Douglas, who's my karate brother, who's, and I was just actually just with him uh, this last weekend. And, uh, but then when I took my black belt test, which it took me 13 years, three months, and five days of training before I was ready to take it, because in this particular system, the way Murphy had it, you had to fight 10, a 10-round bout, three minutes each round with a fresh opponent each round, all, but one were black belts. And so, um, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of training and discipline to be able to sustain your heart at, uh, in my case, it was between 165 to 195 beats for 45 minutes. Cause you had 10 rounds with one minute break in between each round. First, And you can watch all of this on YouTube because it was covered by ABC News and, and was the front page of the Los Angeles Times sports section. Uh, but I uh, first round, I, I had fought the man I just managed, Douglas. he was nice to me. He just hurt me. And there was one time I caught a sidekick from my right in the dead square in the solar plexus, second ground. Uh, the worst thing that is my nose got splashed. Oh. he Because this big old pop and that was a fist and that's my so I swallowed blood for the next nine rounds as well as he got me a number of good shots in the groin <sighs> down, i took i uh, this guy I I, I I had the best of him he, he was half korean half american he was about four or five inches taller than me but my same weight the other two guys were heavyweight he was my my, my weight which was 168 and uh, but he was uh, a couple of times when he's kicking me in the head, I just lifted him off the ground right between his legs and uh, twice. And so he, all of a sudden he was hurting fourth round. You know, I fought this guy, Diego, who he and I, were, we were the same size and weight. And when we're fighting each other, <coughs> excuse me, it looks like we're trying to kill each other, <laughs> but we're actually the best of friends. But when we're in the ring, the, the friendship uh, stays outside the ring. And uh, it was just, a, it was just a really nice match. And it, it were. Fifth round, whatever, sixth round, seventh round was the one that really was bad. I fought the heavyweight champ of Mexico. He weighed, outweighed me by almost 50 pounds. He was 105, same height. He was built like a fire hydrant and mean as a bulldog and looked like one too. And uh, he, I caught a ridge hat on the right ear, so he ruptured my right eardrum. And then I always you know, I, I was, I was keep my hands, my elbows tucked in and my gloves you know, almost pinned to my cheeks just so that I didn't have to worry about seeing a punch coming or coming my way. I was already you know covered up for the most part. And then, anyway, I caught a roundhouse shake right about two inches above my elbow and he snapped my arm. So I thought the last next three and a half rounds with a broken right arm.
0: Did you uh, really? Uh, <laughs> oh
2: my yeah. goodness. And then and on the seventh, the eighth round, uh, the, uh, the instructor, John Murphy, yelled, Yami, which means stop fighting. And because we, we're in a clench, you, know, you know, and that's when you, you're, you're using your head and you know, nasty shots start happening. So they break you up as soon as you're in a clench. And, uh, and as soon as he said, Yami, and stop fighting, the guy took his knee and rammed it up right between my legs.
1: Oh. And
2: uh, it, 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 guys will tell you, getting <laughs> hit there uh, hurts really bad. It's like a fire hydrant. All of a sudden... Uh, the pain starts shooting up from my groin and just exploded out, and I'm literally—you can see me on the on the floor, you know what's called a standing eight count. I'm just going, uh, 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 holding my groin, and Murphy goes, "Are you ready?" And I'm just going, uh, uh, then he goes, "Yame." He didn't after ten seconds. He just said, "Fight," but Yame means fight. So you see me go from holding my groin. Uh, uh, I turn, I face my opponent, I run him down. I grabbed my heels, yummy. And then I took my knee and I rammed it up right between his legs. No. And then I got shoot, and I got shoot out for it. He goes, I just told him no shots after I said, yeah, don't you do it too. And I said, Hey, I had to pay him back <laughs> anyway. And then the ninth and 10th round were fine. The last guy, the 10th round, he was smaller than me. And man, I just about took his head off. But then anyway, as soon as it was done, I collapsed to the floor and they had to <laughs> peel my gloves off and, uh, pick me back up and, and, uh, but anyway, it was, uh, it was uh, quite the adventure. And, uh, but yes, I've always enjoyed the martial arts, and um, my wife and I, we uh, train together. She has a black belt in three different karate systems. She has a black belt under me, a second-degree black belt in Wadakai, and a second-degree black belt in Taekwondo, the first-degree black belt in Jaquito. And we have a, our home, we have a full gym and uh, you know, everything you find in a nice uh, hotel and Elliptical and bike and machine bag and 18, uh, sorry, 20 station vector 4800 and three racks of dumbbells. and, wow. and so, so we have no, re- no excuse not to work out. Well, um, and I heard somewhere big...
0: that you have not missed a workout in 45 years.
2: Well, it, it's now uh, 40, uh, uh, 2017, uh, 46 years. Um, let me say. I'll get day. Uh, <laughs> you know nine exactly nine months, ni- nine months and nine months and uh, what day of the week is it's twenty 20- Wednesday okay. nine nine months and yeah nine months and uh, uh, nine months and nineteen days.
0: Okay, no, so no, no. I'm
2: sorry, eight, uh, sixteen days.
0: So you've not missed a workout in forty six <laughs> years, nine months and sixteen days. Six days. <laughs> Okay.
2: Uh, nine months and 16
1: days. Yes.
0: 16 days. And you yeah. are a legendary card mechanic, and you're a black belt in karate, and you cannot see.
2: That is true. But I figure I we should tell everyone
0: vid. that at some point. Can we
2: tell them that? I don't well, know. You know what? I probably, still they, think you're pretty well, they, fascinating. It, <laughs> well, they probably can't tell over, over a podcast, you know, if they were looking at me maybe they would catch a creep. I
0: don't know, man. Uh, I uh, watched you on the Penn and Teller show, and oh. it would have taken me a while. I don't I don't know if I had known. I don't know. So let's talk about that. So you guys, um, Richard has not been able to see when you started losing your sight at age nine, right?
2: That's when it started. Yes, and okay. I was not blind at nine. I started losing it at okay. nine. And my, during my teens and 20s, my vision was measured at what's called 20 over 400. 2,200 mm-hmm. is considered legally blind. 2,400 is twice as low as that. And that was best corrected. Uh, okay. But also, it was my macula that started dissolving first. So my peripheral was 20 over 400, but I had absolutely no forward vision at all. So mm-hmm. just imagine yourself with a hat in front of your face. Wherever you look, that hat moves it moves with you. So there's always a hat blocking your Forward view, and then out of the side of your eyes, it's a just a blurry um, mess where uh, you see just different uh, shapes and uh, objects. And and, I, and, if, and when I played cards, if I I could get the cards, if I got them within two inches of my eye, I could tell what they were. But then, oh, probably the third, fourth decade of my, decade of my life, everything just went totally uh, black when it as far as being able to see what is actually there.
0: I have so many questions for you. <laughs> uh,
2: in fact, let me, let me just let me just uh, share with you something.
0: Yeah.
2: When I say what is totally there, because I have a very rare condition. It's called Charles Bonnet syndrome, B-O-N-N-E-T, Charles uh-huh. Bonnet syndrome. And it was first documented in 1760 by Charles Bonnet. And it's a condition where a person who has lost their sight should see black. You know, most people that are blind see nothing. They see black. I see a kaleidoscope of beautiful, vivid colors, patterns, shapes, images, every subconscious image you can imagine. I see not in my mind, but in, in front of me, in external space. So I see my subconscious externally is what I call it. I call it like living in virtual reality.
0: Really? So, and, there's
2: some really and there's some really cool things about that. And, and let me just, uh, for one, everything is uh, everything is two dimensional as far as the images go but they're layered in three dimensions it's like if you were underwater and uh, with the sun shining in the pool and floating around you everything you, you could imagine in your in your mind is floating around you and i live in two spectrums the red spectrum which is all i call it, uh, left brain geometric shapes and everything and the right spectrum which is all different types of blue shades shades of blue and it's all very random and i think that's based on the right and left half of the brain is why it's like that and probably 70 percent of the time i'm in what i call the blue spectrum but like uh, why what's cool about it is like say i want to memorize a, a script or remember somebody's phone number i can write the number in the air just like you'd be writing it. On a chalkboard,
0: uh-huh.
2: and I have what's called a dedic memory. I take a picture of it, and I never forget it. it. Just goes in there and gets logged, in. so I can just look it up like a like a, something on an index card. Or oh. I can I've designed houses and patio decks and board games and uh, all kinds of things like that. Watching the things being put together, engineering, uh, engineered within, uh, like I said, this external uh, space that I live within
0: wow so was it like that um pretty much when when your vision left like in your you said it was your 30s right is that when the color Uh, started or was it before no no
2: it started it started when i was a teenager in fact my high school bud uh jim blowers he calls it uh, my cd which stands for photographic display and when i first got it you know it was uh, it was only in the area where that black hat I described where that black hole was. Yeah. It was only in that part that I would see all these images and stuff. And then as that as the retina continued to degenerate, it then encompassed, you know, three hundred and sixty degree of my vision.
0: Okay. Wow, that's fascinating. So how did you like how did you continue with your card mechanics and, and how do you do it with no sight? That's just beyond me. I mean, watching you on the Penn and Teller video, you guys go look it up on YouTube. Um, what is their show name? It just left my brain. Uh,
2: Fool Us. Fool Us, right. O-O-L-U-S. Yeah. That's so Fool Us.
0: Google Richard Turner and Penn and Teller on Fool Us and watch this episode because how, how do you do what you do, Richard? I don't understand. It's amazing. In, in,
2: pe- and Penn and Teller are two of the smartest people on the planet, yeah. and they had no clue. In fact, I was just with them, performing with them live about six weeks ago, and I said, Teller, you want me to show you what, how I'm doing, and, and this is in Penn's words. Penn said, "You know, Teller got down on his knees, and he was three to four inches away from Richard's hands, watching as uh, you know, he did all this stuff, and, he, and Penn, Teller goes, Richard, you're not helping me at all. All you're doing is hurting my brain. I said, <laughs> I can't see anything. I don't understand. That was, that was really fun. And you know, like I said, they, these guys are two of the most educated people on the planet.
0: Right. And I know you can't tell but, us how you do it, but how do you do it? Like, I mean, it's just it's
2: well, incredible I, I to can watch. Tell you, yeah, I can tell, kind of explain to the audience what I do. Yeah, you know, let's The do conditions that. I can do it. Yeah. like You could take a deck of cards and shuffle them up. You can say the game you wanna play, say seven card stud or Texas Hold'em. You can say how many players you want in the game, say you want five. You can say which player you want to have be the winner and hand me the deck and I'll deal it out and that player will be the winner. And then sometimes I push the envelope where each time I go around the table, I'll let anybody take the cards out of my hand, shuffle them some more, and even keep cards out of the deck and just hand me back any random part of the deck and and as you as I go around the table, you just watch a, a hand slowly come together, and you can honestly say the guy's not playing with a full deck because I'm letting people just take out any any of my cards and hand me whatever part they want me to work with. So that's one, for instance. That's the, when I really pushed the envelope, and I did that when I performed live with them about six weeks ago. It wasn't on the piece that you uh, referred to, and uh, and they go, Richard. All you did was fool us again. He, and then Penn said, he fooled us with every single move he did. <coughs> so that was fun. But, and then another, for instance, say uh, you can, you know, I let the people choose the card they want me to dem- use for demonstration. Say they choose seven. And uh, I'll say, how how many players do you want? Say they want five. And I say, where do you want to sit? Four. And so I'll give the deck just what's called casino proceed. I can three riffle shuffles and I hand them the deck and as they deal at the 4th, 10th, 16th and 20th uh, card I'll 22nd 41st card off the deck uh, no, uh, anyway every 4th every 5th card every 4th card in the 5th at a 5 player table uh, will be one of the cards that they uh, had chosen so in other words I shuffled their cards back to the deck exactly where they chose and they dealt them to prove that I did it so that's another, for instance, of what a, what a card mechanic does and can do, or at least what I do. Another thing I, that people always like is, I'll say, ha, ha, pick a number, 1 to 52. And within half a second, I'll hand them the exact number of cards they asked for. 37 cards, 20 cards, 17 cards, 8 cards, whatever they, whatever they choose. I actually one time won a a uh, guy carpeting my house because he bet me I couldn't do it with his business cards.
0: <laughs> and you could? And I,
2: and I did, oh yeah. Well
0: how do you do it? How do you my... do it not being able to see? How do you know what cards well, are potential. where?
2: Well I know and the thing is even, and the thing is even if even if let's put it this way, even if you had twenty twenty Superman vision and the cards were face up and you could see every card coming off the deck. To stop and let you grab the cards out of my hand, mess them up, and just give me some five or ten or twenty cards back and say keep dealing, how, even if the deck was face up. How is it conceivable?
0: Right. You just do it. And,
2: or or if you had a, or, yeah, or if the That's cards had you. a big old giant embossed king on the king and a big giant two on the two, you know how, how would it still be conceivable?
0: I don't Something know. That's what I'm asking ponder. you, Richard. Tell us how. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's Uh, incredible. I mean it's just incredible.
2: Yeah. And when I did it on that's incredible, which was Mm thirty
0: speaking of that's
2: incredible. (laughs) Yeah, I was I did I did a blindfold with their cards, even though they just put a blindfold on just for the audience that had any doubts.
0: That's amazing. Well, how does is it the same way with the karate? I mean, you just you just do and you sense. Like how do you fight someone?
2: Well, I, I'm perfectly, perfectly honest, I cannot fight anymore. And I won't. First of all, I'm too old. It hurts. My <laughs> body has taken its blows. Um, but back then, I, as, long as, as long as I could see the shadow of where a person was, I could. I, I, that's all I needed. Now mm-hmm. I can't do that. So okay. then now I have to either take the hit you know or you know once somebody is committed and then i and if i get a hold of them then, I, then things are okay but i don't want to take that that first uh, blind shot that they might smash me in the nose or whatever so i i can't i don't fight anymore and uh, um so yeah but back then i could see like i could see the shadows and shapes of where about my opponent was wow
0: so one of the things you say, I think it's on the trailer for Delt, the the new documentary about you. Um you said procrastination and laziness are the worst disabilities. I love oh,
2: that. Oh yeah. Well, and that came about because um I when when I would be practicing uh I would have people say, "Oh, I don't want to do that. That's too hard. That takes too much work. Or oh, I'll work on that tomorrow. Or I'll start training tomorrow. Or I asked you to do your sit-ups. Well, I'm going to start tomorrow. Have you started running? You want to lose that weight? I'm going to start. I'm going to do it. My New Year's resolution. That'll be my New Year's resolution. And so that everybody wants to put off tomorrow what they can do right now. And uh, so I always thought, she whiz. You know, I, 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 give me, give me. Uh, blind sight over procrastination or laziness any day of the week. So yeah. it was just something and I randomly said that on the Penn and Teller show and I could be perfectly honest, I didn't even remember that I said it. <laughs> and it, it it was it was edited in the in the in the roll in and and now people have talked about it all over the world.
0: Yeah. Well it's incredible. I mean it's incredible to think Did you, so when you began to lose your sight, were you kind of a gritty kid that that knew what you wanted and you were very hardworking or was the loss of sight something that sort of drove you to be that way?
2: Well, when I first lost my sight, I lost my ability to paint and draw. I was a really good artist. starting at five years old. The teacher said, wow, look what Ricky's did. And I did a, a figure painting of a landscape from a National Geographic picture and, they, and so in first, second, third grade, I, I, was, I, had a lot of, I got a lot of recognition for my artistic skills as a little boy. And then when the vision started going south, I lost that ability. And, and then I was in special school for the visually impaired. They called it a VH room. They just for visually handicapped. And I was not one that liked the word handicap, and I hated the word blind. So, you know, as I, I lost my the attention that I received from the art and and I was low no longer able to do the art, uh, the the painting and stuff. And so that led to rebellion and there was about a three year period when I got involved with the drug scene and uh uh the they were the ones that didn't tease with the druggies, you know they they you know they just they accepted you the way way you were yeah. at first. And then uh and then uh you know I had Anyway, things got pretty bad, and uh, finally uh, some guy said, hey, you need to change your ways, and you need to join us, come to church with us, and you know, you know, realize that you're not here by accident, you have a purpose, and so I started going to church with him, and, and uh, that redirected uh, the downward spiral, if you would, that I was in into an upward one, and I uh, graduated from high school early, got a scholarship at a, a Bible college, and right there I met, when I was 18, I met a guy named Steve Terrell, T-E-R-R-E-L-L. He was a TV and movie star back in the 50s and early 60s. I had his own television series and died in just about every Western out there, and um, he formed a theater company called The Lamb's Players, and I joined them in 72, of just 72 to 78, and He's the one that taught me how to play the part of a sighted person, how to look people in the eye and give them the impression that I could see them. Oh, wow. And he would watch me behind the scenes. You know, we were rehearsing for the different shows, plays that we were doing. And before, before the scene, during the scene, after the scene, he'd see me just pick up the cards and practice move after move. And he goes, you know what? If you become the best card man in the world, you will earn, earn the respect of others and that will open doors for you. So that kind of uh, inspired me to you know, become the best that I could be. And then Dive Vernon, when I met him, he said something very similar. He said, if you can do anything, it doesn't matter what it is, if you can do anything better than everyone else in the world, people will try to break down your doors to meet you. And so those two statements just sat in my head and uh, and it encouraged me to take that nervous energy that i had and focus it on practicing moves and as we the whole time we've been sitting here talking i've been practicing certain uh, section deals and just to give you some numbers i practice an average of 10 to 20 hours a day seven days a week and i sustain that for 26 years straight and then when my son was born when i was 41 22 years ago, um, he'd slop around my cards when I'd try to feed him. <laughs> my, wife would, my wife would breastfeed, the, You know, breast pump the milk out and put it in the bottle and I'd feed him and he'd dribble all over my cards. So that <laughs> kind of slowed my practicing down for a period of time.
0: Those darn and, kids, uh, they do that. <laughs>
2: I'd, and I know. And then, and then when I got involved with the technology, because, you know, uh, in 1998, I got my first computer and i did not want to get a darn computer because i you, I, you cannot practice while you type it on a keyboard and i finally my sister, who also lost her sight about the same time I lost my sight um, she was you know, very she was a technology wizard uh, 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 technology for the visually impaired and so I got my first talking computer in ninety eight and um, and now of course iphones you know have Siri and they talk at you. And, and so that really did uh, open up a lot more opportunities for writing and other things, email or whatever. And, uh, but at the same time, it also took away opportunities. I cannot practice when I'm on that dang computer. computer right. in my office. Yeah, I have my computer set up, and then I spin around in my desk chair, and right behind me is my poker table with my card. So if for some reason I'm stopping to think about something or whatever... You know, you just flip around and then go back to practicing. But now, I uh, I only practice between three to ten hours a day.
0: Do you think you would have been this successful and this uh, hardworking and relentless in your pursuit of of your your profession if you had been sighted? I've
2: been asked that a lot of times. I I I, I uh, for me, the loss of sight was a blessing. It mm-hmm. did. It enhanced my sense of touch, and and then, like I said, this Charles Bonnet syndrome, where the, you know, the brain started uh, doing these tricky things, where I could see within, uh, see my external, my mind, uh, my thoughts externally, and uh, so between those two things, it did it did uh, give me some creative uh, abilities, and then ways of tricking the brain into to doing other things, and uh, and like I said, a touch that so far um, as Di Vernon says no one else can do Yeah. but if I wouldn't I probably would have I, I figured if, I did, if my vision would have stayed the way it was I probably would have been another uh, uh, artist out there another really good starving artist
0: yeah when you hold when you hold a deck of cards what do you see because you see things in your head what oh, do yeah. you see
2: Oh, yeah. In fact, I like I'm, I'm out to dinner with people. I have the cards under the table so I can practice without them being on top of the table because as soon as I have them on top, they'll say, Hey, do something for us. I don't want to <laughs> do anything. I have the cards because I'm practicing, not because I want to perform. Yeah. I have the cards under the table and I will be watching and I will see my hand as I'm talking to you right now. I will see my hands holding the deck,
0: mm-hmm. pushing
2: over the card, dealing out the second card, stick it in the middle of the deck, and I'll I'll, be, I'll watch that technique, and I'll watch it in slow motion, and I'll see it. But there's a, a solid table between me and my hands, but yet I'll see it as if the table wasn't there. But here's what's interesting. If I turn my head to the side, I can no longer do that. I have to physically be looking toward,
1: mm-hmm. toward
2: my hands or toward whatever it is that I'm uh, doing to be able to see it within the mind's eye or in this external uh, vision that I have. But if I turn away I can't see it. And like I said, even though there's a table between me and the object, I still see it. But when I turn my head, I can't see it.
0: When did blink. you begin just to you the power to brain. Yeah, when Sorry. did you begin to perfect that?
2: Ah, that just I, I, ever since I was in high school, like I said, my high school bud Jim Blowers, he would call it my CD and if we needed to write down uh, some information for something, I'd just write it in the air and Yeah. And um, I don't, you know, it, it, it's just something that's almost always uh, been with me. And, by, and the thing is, my dad was very gifted. He was uh, uh, he, he worked on John Glenn and Alan Shepard's first uh, spacecraft, all the, way up to the second, up uh, to the first space shuttle, and he also worked in, in the nuclear uh, nuclear reactors and stuff. And he never had more than a seventh grade education, but he was just an uh, engineering whiz. And uh, he, would have, uh, he, would have been, he would have died a wealthy man if the places he worked for didn't get the rights to the things that he came up with. But he was taken care of for what he did. But uh, uh, he, was, he was a very meticulous uh, engineering whiz.
0: So is it safe to say when you're holding a deck of cards... You're looking straight ahead because that's when you have your superpower. You know every card in that deck from top to bottom.
2: No, I do not. No,
0: no, do you uh, know what's on top and what's on
2: bottom? No, <laughs> no, no, no uh, not unless I won't. Uh, no, but if okay. I want, if I if uh, like, I said, I let you let you shuffle, we're going to play blackjack. Now, as I'm dealing and doing what I do, I can make the cards that I want come out where and when I want, uh, even with the deck that you've shuffled up.
0: Okay. Uh,
2: but when, it, when I start off, I start off cold.
0: Wow. Okay, so let's talk about the documentary. How did this come about? And tell everyone a little bit about what what they can expect when they watch it, and how do you feel about being a movie star?
2: <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that, being a movie star. I've you know, been seeing by i've been seen in 214 countries by parts of my act and i estimated one billion people wow which is creepy creepy by itself right um but the how the film came about called dealt as in Delt a hand of cards and they took the name from a, a motivational program that i do which is called winning with the hands you Have been dealt and mm-hmm. dealt is an acronym quickly dealt D stands for dreams our dreams fuel the fire in our belly. E stands for excellence. What opens doors is becoming an expert, achieving a state of excellence. H stands for analysis. You have to analyze your obstacles, analyze your assets. L stands for loyalty. must be loyal to our company, colleagues, customers, values such as honesty, integrity, so on. And T stands for tenacity. Tenacity breaks down the barriers that stand between us and our dreams. So that's, uh, they saw me give that, so they asked how it, they got the name and they asked if I mind. If they use that name for the film, I said, that's fine. And, uh, but how I ended up going with them, I had uh, another pro- uh, director out of L.A. that wanted to do a feature documentary on my life. And then I was in a show called con with uh, three other top uh, hustlers. One was the top kickboxer in the world, Bob Arnold. The other was one of the top midday middle, middle players in the world, Baron and uh, Todd Robbins, who the New York Times calls the king of con, and myself, and uh, one of the producers of the producers of the show wanted to do a uh, uh, feature doc. And then I had these guys in Texas, and what I the Texans, I st- anyway, they came to me and talked to me, and uh, I I said, let me see you the last uh, film that you did. And they said, why did you want to see our film? How are you going to see it? And so they sent me a link to their film, and I sent it to a friend of mine named Dave McFadgian.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: Dave McFadgian was the co-creator of the TV series Home Improvement with Tim Allen. Oh yeah, and
1: yeah. Movies, yeah. And
2: movies, in movies like What Women Want with Mel Gibson and
0: Oh, I love that Bernie. movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, those those were, those are his products, Prod- yeah. And um, okay. So so he mm-hmm. looked. And he said these guys are good, good. And uh, so I. I and I knew the people that were the executive producers in town. They had very deep pockets, and so they, you know, they were going to have the finances, financing, and so on. They needed to do a first-rate job, and I was glad I went with them. And another reason, the director, Luke Corum, K-O-R-E-M, mm-hmm. his father is Dan, Danny Corum, and Danny and I grew up around the same people for 40 years at Marlow, Chicago. I've because his father, Luke Forbes' father, was a professional magician and wrote books on the subject back in the early 80s. And so uh, Luke, the director, he grew up doing magic and stuff since he was like four years old up until he started college. And so he had a background in the subject, and that really does help. Yeah. And, uh, and, the, and what, what I like about Luke is when they filmed my card work, they, it was in studio with, they had what was called Red Camera 5K and 5K cameras, like five times higher than HD, regular 1K uh, high def. And they would use like 100 millimeter macro lenses. That's a lens to catch, to look at the eye of an ant. So when you're watching some of the moves that I do with the cards, it is uh, the the little teeny diamonds on the back of the card will be like three feet tall on the screen. Wow! And, uh, and they shot and they shot scenes p- pieces like where I'm dealing say, uh, seconds where I'm on the card. They actually shot into my eye with the deck held in front, and you see the, the me doing the moves inside the eye. And they had a glass table made so you catch. They had the cameras under the table and. So they captured the work, as they said, in the a way no one has ever done it, and who would have ever spent that much money just to film cards? But let me let the audience know that this is not like going and watching a David Copperfield special or something. All right. Cards are, part, cards are part of it, but is the way they did the story arc, um, the cards are maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes worth of the two and a half, uh, one and a half hours of the film. The, they they managed to tell a story that makes 50 to 60% of the women cry, 20 to 30% of the men cry, then the next thing you're laughing your head off, then your toes curl, <laughs> and then and it leaves you uh, encouraged and inspired. So they managed to hit five big bullseyes, which is really hard to do as a filmmaker. And I they managed to do it because uh, the LA Times, the New York Times, the Variety Magazine, uh, all of them have given it rave reviews. We're 94 on Rotten Tomatoes, which is really, really hard to... to yeah, get. it is. That's a and, that's a tough yeah. one, those tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. So well, we where have can all everyone five stars one. Well, it's in the like spec theaters across the country right now. I can't, I don't know the cities right now. I just returned from San Diego a couple of days ago where it's... Uh, where it's airing in San Diego right now but that was just how different for the premiere uh, in that city but it's also in Chicago and other cities across the country you can go to doubtmovie.com to find out what theaters but it also is available on iTunes okay in fact we were number one on iTunes for a couple of weeks all, of all downloads and uh, or, uh, video on demand any video on demand like us, uh, it's Amazon Prime, yeah, good. Google Play, yeah, Very there's good. a lot of places, and the DVD the DVD comes out in February and then it'll be on, on Hulu, I think it is in April, and they negotiate with Hulu, and, and then that's just domestically, they're negotiating international distribution, and uh, when that happens, you get, you'll be able to go to beltmovie.com and find out when the international the distribution starts.
0: Well, that's awesome. Um, So what is something that you do on a daily basis that that makes your life better? This podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and the idea is we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do individually that that makes our lives better, makes us happier, more successful. So what's something that you, Richard Turner, do on a daily basis that, that makes your life better?
2: I call my wife on the phone, Kim and give her, we call it a big smooch or <laughs> smooch over the phone. And then I'll say, what do you say? We have a date upstairs when you get home. <laughs> and that means, that means we're going to, that means we're going to work out. And I say, you want to make it a double date a upstairs date and a downstairs date. That means we're going to work out upstairs and then we're going to go downstairs and be husband and wife. Oh. Uh, I love those double dates. <laughs> and, uh, but just hearing my wife's voice, um, but ends my day, and then other times I'll just call friends. I have friends all over the country and all over the world, and I stay in contact with all of them because I really appreciate uh, the, the many, many wonderful friends that I've had the privilege to know and get to know and have known, and so on.
0: Well, that's awesome, Richard. I appreciate you taking time to chat with me, and we're all gonna run, not walk, to see the movie. I can't wait. I'm actually gonna watch it this evening. So I'm super excited. I wanted to talk to you first without seeing it. I don't know. Is that weird? Most people probably would want to watch it first.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Let me know what you think after you watch it. Call I me will. back and tell me what you thought.
0: I will. And um, I will post a link up to the movie so everyone can go check it out. And um, just have happy holidays. And, and it, was, it was my pleasure to speak with you. You really are a fascinating person.
2: Yeah. And I always say, have a great Thanksgiving. Don't forget to eat. And I would say Merry Christmas.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I,
2: I'm I'm old-fashioned. <laughs> That's okay.
0: <laughs> Take care, Richard. Thank you. Okay.
2: Thank you, Darren. Good day, Darren.
0: Okay. Bye. Hi, everybody. Before you go, don't forget to start your year off right. Check out com. This is a new revolution that has started. And I am not joking when I say revolution because people are completely tired of the nonsense that is in their lives. And what I mean by that is... It can be anything that you know is standing in your way of being your best self, but there is a set of sort of pledges and commitments at year that many of you guys have already taken the pledge and just saying, Hey, I'm, I'm starting this year off correctly the way that I need it. And it's going to be a year of no nonsense. So check out the website and take the pledge and we'll see you
1: online.